Nichts weiß. So when I was a kid, my family moved to Lakeland. Looking at you, Ray. Um, right, ac and right across the street from our neighborhood where we moved was this school called Temple Christian. Okay, I don't know if anybody from Lakeland ever heard of that, but I have, I have no idea, even to this day, if they were affiliated with a particular denomination, or, but let's just say uh, they were conservative, and truthfully, that's probably giving them a little too much credit by saying conservative, legalistic is probably the better word. Um, I, I, I do believe they still, be, they still uh, practice corporal punishment on a regular basis, um, and I... You know, over the course of my time there, I had a few run-ins with the... I mean, I was in first grade, but um, through first grade, second grade, and third grade, I had a few run-ins with the administration. Um, you know, never anything outrageous, but I wasn't really a big fan of rules growing up. I don't know if anybody can relate or if you all love rules, but... Um, and they had a rule for everything. So, you know, we just, right from the beginning, we just didn't really get along too well. And I remember every Friday, the assistant principal would walk around to every classroom and she would, you know, open your door and kind of waddle in and she would come over to um, where she would stand in the back. Uh, did I just paint a picture or something? Um, she would come in and sit in the back and, you know, as a first grader, I'm like, what's happening here? And I would see her and she would just be like... And she would just be looking down the rows of all the kids. And I, I had no idea what she was doing. And then, like, at the end, when you could tell that she had kind of made her eye movements around every kid, she would motion to the teacher and she'd be like, that one, that one, that one, and that one. And so then all of us, I was always included, would get <laughs> sent out into the hallway. And she'd get out a little ruler and she would, no spankings involved, that, that wasn't the corporal punishment, but she would get, she got this little ruler and she would measure whether or not your hair was in compliance. Um, and then she would send a note home outlining just how excessively sinful you were, your hair was for that particular week. And like clockwork, my mom, who happens to be here today, would get a note, who's laughing right now, would get a note and then she'd read the note and she'd go over to the closet and she'd get out the Floby, you know, and she'd come back over. I'm just kidding. We didn't have a Floby. Does anybody remember Flobies? Anybody? It was like this 80s shop vac that you would hook up and, you know, you'd pull all the kids' hair up in the air. And anyway, we didn't, we didn't have a Floby. I wish, I always wanted one, but we didn't have one. We digress. Okay, let's bring it back. Um, anyway, she would get this note from my assistant principal and she would kind of roll her eyes and then of course she wouldn't do anything about it and so then the next week I would get pulled back out of class and written up again and so you know that's kind of how my first grade went and my second grade went and there were some other issues and then halfway through third grade Mrs. Huff all right I looked for a picture of her online I couldn't find one Mrs. Huff called my mom and said that she thought I should go to school somewhere else Okay, and I don't remember all the details. I don't remember exactly how it went down. I just remember that halfway through third grade, I went home for Christmas break, and I didn't go back to school when school resumed in the spring. And I have no doubt my third grade friends are still desperately looking for me and wondering <laughs> where in the world I went between those two breaks. Um, but apparently I talked a lot, had a little bit of an attitude 
I mean, I was in third grade, come on. But a little bit of an attitude, and I'm sure, you know, you guys right now are just like, there's no way, like, there's, you know, you know me, there's no way you could even imagine that kind of stuff happening. But my favorite complaint of the list um, was that I would look out the window for hours. She's shaking her head, so she knows it's right. I would look out the window for hours. I guess Mrs. Huff would be teaching, and she would, you know, kind of look around the class. If you're a teacher, I'm sure you do this. And she would see me, and I would just be like, I guess I would just be zoned out, looking out the window, not paying attention. And this really intrigued my mom. I remember it really intrigued my mom, because we couldn't really put me in any school, so then we did homeschooling for the rest of that year, and that was a whole new adventure of its own. Um, and But it really, you know, as we were kind of the first couple days we were homeschooling, um, I don't know why I just put air quotes on that. It really was homeschool. But the first couple days we did that, she would press on me about the looking out the window thing. Like, why, why did you stare out the window? Like, are you, are you thinking about something? Are you, are you worried about something? And I'm sure I made some excuse up, you know, just probably to appease her as a normal third grader would do. But the truth is, I had no idea what I was thinking about. I mean, I was eight, right? Most of my thoughts, if you can think back to when you were eight, most of your thoughts are like happy thoughts. Baseball, bicycle ramps, you know, video games, Nintendo, or, you know, so they're happy thoughts, or there's probably a category for scary thoughts, burglars and bad dreams, and, you know, who am I going to sit next to in the cafeteria, and what do these kids think about me? I know that sounds weird, but when you're that age, your thoughts tend to be very circumstantial. Right? I'm enjoying what I'm doing right now. I'm playing baseball. I'm happy. I'm not enjoying what I'm doing right now. I just woke up with a bad dream. I'm scared. I mean, that's, that's kind of your thought life as a kid. But I, I remember this specifically. For the first time in my life, I actually thought about my thoughts. I know that's weird to say, but it actually made me take pause and be like, what am I? Like, you know, for the first time, I kind of had a recognition that there, you actually could think about your thoughts, right? And I realized that some of those were bad. And, you know, if you harped on those bad things, so I thought, okay, my sister makes me mad. I had two little sisters. Sisters make me mad. They do this. And you, you think about those enough and you think about how they're frustrating you enough, eventually you're going to do something about it. Thoughts tend to lead to actions. Would you agree? I mean, if you harp on them enough and you obsess over them enough, they tend to lead to negative actions if they're, if they're bad thoughts. And then on the other side, I could dwell on good thoughts. And those good thoughts would eventually lead the other way. Right? And the Bible talks about this, all right? So I realize this is theology from an eight-year-old. But at its base level, you know, as you begin to get older, you recognize that your mind is a battlefield. And there are good thoughts, and there are bad, bad thoughts. And it's just like where good and evil squares off in your mind. Would you agree? It's, it's this constant. It's this spiritual warfare constantly going back and forth. A.W. Tozer says that 10,000 thoughts run through our mind every day. Ten, I don't know if he counted, but 10,000 thoughts run through our mind every day. And they drive us to not only who we are, but they drive us to what we do and how we act. Would you agree? I mean, that's your thought life. I mean, it's preceded. Everything you do is preceded by your thought life. Like, they, they lead us to that. He goes on in this article here, Tozer does. He says, our voluntary thoughts not only reveal what we are, they predict what we will become. All conscious behavior, I realize, he realizes there are some, there's some reactionary actions that happen just from life situations. But all conscious behavior is preceded by and arises out of our thoughts. The will can become a servant of the thoughts, and even our emotions tend to follow our thinking. The more I think about it, the madder I get. 
Thinking stirs feeling, and feeling triggers action. And when I read that, I was like, wow, that is so insightful. I mean, it's, it makes sense. But I just had never really thought about it that way. In the past few months, we've been studying and preaching through 1 Samuel. And we've been introduced to a guy named King Saul and his soon-to-be successor, David. And these two are like polar opposites. I mean, polar opposites. Everything about their lives. On the one hand, you have Saul, and at this point in the story, he is consumed with hate. Everything about Saul is consumed with hate. On the other side, you have David, who's not perfect by any stretch. We see a couple instances where he's not making good decisions, but he relies on the Lord for direction and guidance. And the sad part is, or the interesting part is, if you, fa- if you rewind to the beginning of Saul's life, when he first became king, when we first met Saul in the early chapters of 1 Samuel, he was a farmer. Just a simple farmer. He trusted the Lord. But after a while, I mean, he had wisdom, he had discernment, but after a while, he became king. And then, he, even when he was king, when he first became king, he was fighting battles. He was courageous. He trusted Samuel. I mean, he trusted the Lord, but Samuel was the prophet, and Samuel was telling him these things, and he would trust him and do what he said to do. And after a while, you see through the different texts that there's a chirping in his ears from his advisors. Right? It's fear starts to creep into his heart. And it's like this snowball. And he thinks there's a conspiracy going on and a conspiracy idea plagues him and it makes him think that David is out to get him. And then he spends the rest of his life pursuing David. It snowballed 10 different times when you started 1 Samuel chapter 18. You read chapter 18 all the way to where we are today in chapter 26. There's 10 different occasions where Saul is trying to kill David. He's throwing spears at him three different times. He's sending him out to do the, fight the Philistines like in many different occasions. He takes his men to try to kill him. In chapter 23, a few chapters ago, this is actually what we read. 23:14. And David remained in the strongholds, in the wilderness, in the hill country of the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul sought him every day, but God did not give him into his hand. When you first read that, when I first read that, Saul sought him every day. You read it so matter of fact. But step back and think about the fact that Saul sought him every day. Every day, Saul wakes up and his thoughts are consumed with killing David. Can you imagine the hate that has to be in your heart to spend every day consumed with hurting someone? I mean, it's this kind of hate, this kind of whatever you're holding on to, it's life altering. I worked with a lady a few years ago um, whose husband just up and left her out of the blue. And this wasn't one of those situations where, you know, they were fighting every day and it just deteriorated and they got, I mean, this is like out of the blue, up, and she, he just walked out the door. All right. And for a year, she would come to work and anybody who walked by her office, they knew that she, if, you know, if she, they went in there for anything, all she was going to do is say how much she hated her husband. Like I had clients that she would go and see because I worked with her in some cases and I had clients she would go and see and one client actually called the office and said, hey, I got what you sent, but the lady who came, she just talked about how much she hated her husband the whole time. And it was, you know, it's, it was, it got to the point where I was like, man, I can't imagine. Okay, first of all, I'm not downplaying the pain and anger and frustration that would be involved with what happened to her. Not for one second. I can't even fathom 
just up and being walked out on. Like that, that will change your life. But at one point, like nine months into this, I realized, man, this is, because I sat next to her every day, I realized this is paralyzing her. And, and there's, there doesn't seem to be any way out. And this is like she's obsessing over this. And, you know, I, somehow I just want to encourage her to take her thoughts out of what they're on. Not saying they're not justified for a time. But pull her thoughts out and try to point her to the Lord. Because if she's constantly pointed down here, that's just going to... It's just going to snowball. And that's, that's what happened with Saul. He's just like, it's, his life was a snowball. At one point, I walked into her office, and I was like, can I pray with you? Like, I just, I feel like I, I want to pray with you. It was like nine months in, and I said, let's pray together. And I, my, my prayer was just very simple. It was like, I, Lord, I pray that we together, I can help her, and that she would focus on you. Because you are the only one who has the ability to pull her mind and pull her thoughts out of the hate that's currently running through her mind. And that, that process happened over time. I mean, she did get to the point where, you know, it happened. But life has just thrown her a massive curveball. Right? And I said, but look, that curveball does not define you. That's not the rest of your life. You know, your minds right now, a lot of you, your minds are consumed with fears, thoughts. And you don't want them there. They just creep in. You're zoned out the window and all of a sudden just these thoughts come in. You can't get rid of them. You're like, ah. you know, it's work, it's kids, it's debt, it's maybe loss of a loved one, it's a loved one who's sick. And while they may be painful, while they may be consuming, they do not define who you are. They do not define your life. Saul's life was defined by hatred. If you talk to anybody who knows King Saul, if you talk to anybody who has studied King Saul, you're like, tell me, tell me about King Saul. Well, he was the first king of Israel, um, and he chased David for a really long time. When you read 1 Samuel, that's what you take away. A life that revolved around killing and anger and frustration. And today, as we dive into 1 Samuel 26, this is the last standoff between these two. It's the last interaction between Saul and David. It's about eight and a half years in. Eight and a half years in. This has been consuming Saul for eight and a half years. And I can't help but wonder if things could have turned out different. Oh, I know they could have turned out differently. Like, I, I mean, I wonder what, what would have happened if Saul would have trusted in God for deliverance. What if he gave those thoughts and those fears and the chirping of those advisors and people who were in his ear, what if he just gave those fears to the Lord? He said, I, I, just like David did. I, I don't know what's going to happen here. I've been on the run for eight and a half years. But I know that you are the only one who can take care of it. David had no idea what was around the next corner, but he knew who was leading the way. And that, that is the contrast that we see over and over and over again. All right, Paul describes it. Paul talks about this a ton in the New Testament when he's writing the churches. He's writing into these churches because all these churches were going through persecution. All of these churches were, like, there was a lot of stuff happening. He writes to the church at Rome in Romans 12, and he says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. The renewal of your mind. Those thoughts come in, Lord, they're yours. 
clearly the thought in my head right now of fear and I'm, I'm terrified of all the things that are happening, clearly that is not from you. That thought that's in my mind right now is not from God. It's from the enemy. And I, I'm renewing my mind right now. I'm giving you that thought. And today as we walk through 1 Samuel 26, the story is going to sound very, very similar to the previous 10 times. Right? Saul, once again, is angry at David. He's chasing him down. I mean, these things, that's, that's kind of what's happening. All right, we're going to run through it really, really quick because it's very similar, but I want to pull a couple points out that are a little unique. All right, let's jump in. 1 Samuel 26, 1. Then the Ziphites came to Saul. I'm going to butcher all these names, by the way. Then the Ziphites came to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is not David hiding himself in the hill of Hichalah, which is on the east of Jeshimon? So Saul rose and went to the wilderness of Ziph with 3,000 chosen men of Israel to seek David in the wilderness of Ziph. So just like the last chapter, the Ziphites were also related to Caleb. And once again, they hear that David is hiding out in the wilderness of their territory. So they reach out to Saul and they're like, hey, this guy, this David that you've been trying to track down, he's hiding out in our territory. Come get rid of him. And you, you know, when I first read it, I was like, did they not learn their lesson the first time? They already betrayed him once. He already got out of it. And the only thing I could think of is that maybe they were scared that if he did take the throne, that he would wipe him out. So they're just trying one more time to, all right, Saul, see if you can get rid of this guy. Because if you can't, we're probably dead. And so they just kind of betray him one more time. Even though they're, they're Israelites. They're part of the Caleb. I mean, they're part of that same crew. But it's, you know, they said, hey, we're going to betray him. Verse 3. And Saul encamped on a hill. So Saul comes over with his men. Saul encamped on the hill of Hachalah, which is beside the road east of Jeshimon. But David remained in the wilderness. When he saw that Saul came after him into the wilderness, David sent out spies and learned that Saul had indeed come. Then David rose and came to the place where Saul had encamped. And David saw the place where Saul lay with Abner, the son of Ner, the commander of his army. Saul was lying within the encampment while the army was encamped around him. So this is a really common tactic that would be used. The, the king would obviously lay in the center and he, he had 3,000 men around him and they would all camp out and their tents would be all around him in some kind of circle form. So if you wanted to go get the king, you had to go through this. I mean, there's really no way you could get to the king. I mean, 3,000 men signed up or tented up encircling him. It was like an impenetrable fortress. Verse 6, Then David said to Himelech, the Hittite, and to Joab's brother, Abashai, or Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, who will go down with me into the camp to Saul? And Abishai said, I will go down with you. So we have two guys. So David goes up to two guys, Himelech the Hittite, who is probably a foreign mercenary of some sort, and Abishai, who is actually David's nephew. He was the son of one of David's sisters. And so he goes up to him and he looks at these two and says, who's, who's going with me? I'm, I'm going to go over to this camp over here where Saul is, and I want somebody to go with me. And Abishai is like, let's go. Like, I, I, got, I got you, let's go. And Ahimelech is like, okay, wait a minute. There's three of us, and there's 3,000 men encamped, mercenaries themselves, hired men, chosen men from Saul, and you want us to go into their camp to find Saul. And Ahimelech says, I think I'll just stay behind. Abishai and, and David go at it. So Abishai and David, they head for Saul's camp. And there's an interesting aspect of this that I don't want you to miss. David has 600 men with him most of whom are probably hardened warriors, and he takes one of them to challenge the enemy. If I were him, 
which I'm not, but if I were him, I at least would have taken the other 599 people with me since I'm going to find 3,000 people, but he takes one guy. Now, obviously, they probably had a particular idea in mind of what they were going to do, but there's a total of two of them that go into this enemy camp or Saul's camp. And I'm thinking to myself when I'm reading this and studying this, I'm like, how in the world does someone get up the courage? It's easy to read this. It's another thing to live this. How do you get up the courage to take one person into the center of a camp with 3,000 trained mercenaries? How do you do it? There's no way you do it in your right mind, right? I mean, it's just, it doesn't make logical sense. The only way you do it is if you're walking with the Lord, you know that's what he wants you to do. The only way you go in there is if your heart and your mind are in tune with him. And he says, let's go. The only, I mean, life is filled with fears, with things that you think are going to get you, things that are going to take you down, situations that you need to make that are scary. The only way you will ever make it through any of those situations, the only way you will face the challenges of life without fear is by trusting the Lord. Period. There will be situations in your life that come up and you're like, there is no logical way I'm going to do that. God says, go here. And you're like, why? Why would I do that? I'll stay here with the supplies, right? Why would I go there? And God says, I want you to go there. And you're like, all right, God, we are in lockstep and I trust you and I'm going to go. I'm going to quit my job. I'm going to move here. I'm going to go do this. I'm going to move to this neighborhood. I'm going to move to this city. I'm going to... There will be plenty of situations in your life where you're like, on, on the surface, it does not make sense. And God says, trust me. Deuteronomy 31 says, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or tremble at them, for the Lord your God is the one who goes with you. He will not fail you or forsake you. And then if you fast forward from Deuteronomy and go all the way to the New Testament, Jesus comes to earth. Jesus walks with his disciples. He's crucified. He raises again on the third day. And as he's ascending into heaven, probably 40 days later, he looks at his disciples and he says this in Matthew 28. Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And then this last phrase, and I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So many things happen in life as a result of walking with the Lord and trusting Him daily. Life happens walking with the Lord. Can you imagine walking this life, walking through this life without the Lord? Without that comforter, without that peace that he offers, without that confidence you have that what you're doing is you're walking in obedience to him. You know, you move cities and you're like to do ministry or to do work and you're just like, man, Lord, thank you. This is where you wanted me and I just, it all of a sudden feels like home and you're like, this is, that wouldn't normally happen or you go on the mission field and all those fears you had before you left when you land and you get there, I'm not saying the Lord's taking care of all of them, but you know you're where you need to be. Or you get involved in things like adoption and foster care and it just seems like, oh, it's overwhelming situation. The Lord says, I got some strength for you. Like, I'm, I will sustain you. Or you lose a loved one. And you keep trusting him every step of the way. I've watched some of you lose loved ones. And a year has gone by and I'm just like, I don't know how you did it. And I talk to you and you say, I know how I did it. Walking with the Lord. 
He is the one who has sustained me. Without him, I don't know what I would do. I don't know what kind of comfort I would have. Or you get sick and it's a life-threatening sickness and you're like, I don't know what's going to happen, but I know he's in control. I don't know how I'm getting out of this debt. I don't know how I'm going to get out of this situation. But I know that God is in control. And even when things get hard, you do them because you know the Lord is with you. Verse 7. So David and Abishai, they do this. They go, they go into this 3,000 men. They went to the army by night. And there lay Saul sleeping within the encampment. Excuse me. With his spear stuck in the ground at his head. And Abner... And the army lay around him. So David and Abishai, they sneak through the camp and they get all the way to Saul's tent. And they know it's his because there's a spear stuck in the front of the tent. And they still do this a lot of, I mean, this is very common in the ancient times, but it's still common even today in Arab cultures where you have people who are intense a lot. You'll go and you'll know who the sheik is by the spear that's outside the entrance to the tent. So they still identify leaders and tents in this manner. And that's, that's what they saw. So they went up the tent and it said, with his spear stuck in the ground at his head. Verse 8, then Abishai said to David, God has given your enemy into your hand this day. Now please let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear and I will not strike him twice. All right? It sounds like he's being a nice guy. Look. Just one time. But what he's really saying is, I'm only going to need one time. Right? I will take care of this guy with one... You give me one shot, he's done. The Lord has given him into your, into your hand. The fact that we made it into the center of this camp testifies that God wants me to kill him. That's what Abishai is saying. We made it all the way through all this. Look at this. We made it all the way to the center. All these men are still sleeping. How is that even possible? This is clearly God working. And he's like, this is, I mean, and it sounds a lot like chapter 24, where they went, remember when they went in the cave and Saul wandered into the cave and the men are like, kill him, kill him, kill him. This is a divine opportunity to kill him. So David goes up and all he does is cuts off a piece of his robe. Saul gets away. And, you know, it's, it's almost an identical situation. But if I'm David, this case in chapter 26 is even more of a compelling reason to take care of business. To get rid of Saul. Like if I'm, if I'm sitting in David's shoes, I can maybe see how 24, okay, 20, this chapter, this situation, this story. I mean, the guy who is encouraging him is his nephew. It's family. Right? I mean, I got a family member giving me the advice to go ahead and take care of this guy. And family always gives perfect advice. <laughs> right? Wow, you guys laugh so much. <laughs> So obviously, you know, maybe, maybe that's not exactly true, all right? And Saul, Saul didn't just wander into their camp like he wandered into the cave. We actually made it to the center. We actually made it all the way, and we snuck into his camp with everyone still asleep. This is a miracle, and we find out later it was a miracle. God kept them asleep for a reason. So they get all the way to the center, and he's like, Abishai's looking at David. This didn't happen. This is the Lord orchestrating these steps. And then to put the icing on the cake... Abishai says, you don't even have to do it. I'll kill him. I'll kill him for you. Like that's, that's literally, you don't even have to pull the trigger. I mean, God is behind. Abishai says, let me, let me drive this spear into your enemy. And if I'm David, what's going through your mind? I mean, you got good thoughts. You got you know, all these things are going through your mind. You're trying to figure out, all right, Lord, what do you want me to do? This is clearly different. You know, da 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 da, da. I don't know what's going to happen. And David said, look, I, I know my hands are going to be clean. I know Abishai is going to take care of it, but he's the Lord's anointed. 
God's got this. God has the revenge. It is not my job and my or my responsibility to show revenge. God takes care of that. And that's essentially what David says. Verse 9. But David said to Abishai, Do not destroy him, for who can put on his, out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? And David said, As the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him, or his day will come to die, or he will go down into a battle and perish. I love these. these you know, the words are pretty interesting because David has no idea that this is his last interaction with Saul. I mean, he has no reason to know that this is the last time he will interact with Saul. Eight and a half years of running. Years of the devil probably speaking lies. He's just, you know, his mind playing. We can, we can read what happened in the Psalms. 22 of the Psalms are written during these 10 years. So you can read the battles that are going on in his mind. Why aren't you getting me? Why aren't you saving me? Well, I mean, you, you read through the Psalms. That's what you see. And then all of a sudden, the other side, he's like, the Lord is my refuge. Right? The Lord is who I run to in times of trouble. And you see this battle going on in his mind. And so he's like, he's finally, I feel like he's finally come to this point where he's like, all right, I get it. The Lord's going to take care of this. It says the Lord will strike him or his day will come or he will go into battle and perish. And if you think back to chapter 25, which was the previous chapter, remember when David got all, he wanted food for his men. And he goes and he meets this guy named Nabal. And Nabal refused. Who's this guy? Who's this servant? Who's David? Who's David? I don't know no David. Right? And so David gets all offended. And David says, I'm going to kill every one of them. Every one of the men, every one of the men in Nabal's camp are dead. Okay? And then what happens? Abigail comes out, Nabal's wife, and pleads with him not to kill him. Please don't do this. Please don't kill him. And, and David realizes, he's like, all right, this is, you know, the Lord has brought you here. The Lord has shown you, given me discernment through you so that I would not act wickedly. That's basically what David says. And it, in chapter 25, 38, at the end, it says, and about 10 days later, the Lord struck Nabal and he died. The Lord took care of it. And so David's sitting here, and I, I have no, no doubt in my mind that as he rattles off these three things that the Lord could do to Saul and why it's not his responsibility, the first one he says is, the Lord will strike him. And in the Hebrew, it's the same word. Same word. The Lord will strike him, just like the Lord struck down Nabal. Like, God can do anything, and he has unlimited options for accomplishing his purpose. Do you realize that? God has unlimited options for accomplishing his purpose. David had no idea how the Lord was going to deliver him, but he's like, he might do this, he might do this, he might die of old age, he might die in battle. I don't know what's going to happen, but I know that God will deliver me. I remember a few years ago, we, Courtney and I helped to run a homeless ministry for about six years. And there was, you know, running a homeless ministry when nobody gets paid and you don't, you're not a 501c3, you're just trying to like get money together and cook food every week for homeless folks. You're kind of living, you know, quote unquote, paycheck to paycheck. There's, there's not a lot of supplies. And so I remember many times there would be situations where it's like Monday or Tuesday and we have no food for Thursday. And it's not like you can just run out to McDonald's and buy a couple Big Macs. I mean, we were feeding on average 100 to 200 people a week. So these were, you know, there was, there was a lot of food that went into this. And there was a lot of preparation that went into this. So one of the ladies who cooked called me on like a Monday and said, hey, I, I, don't, I don't have enough food for Thursday. And I was like, okay. And I did what I usually do, just kind of put it off. Um, you thought I was going to say I'd get on my knees and pray about it, but... Um, you know, I just was like, Lord, I don't know what to do. I kind of put it off, forgot about it. Well, Wednesday, I get a call that this women's Bible study that wasn't even local, 
and didn't even know we needed food. Had just seen the website, had heard a couple things from a couple different people, decided to send us a check. And they said it was, and they, I said, oh, that's awesome. And I was like, how much is the check? They said $300. I don't know if you can use $300, but that's, you know, that's, could you use it? I don't know. Is that good? I'm like, <laughs> I mean, that's exactly what we need. They didn't know that. I didn't know that. I had no idea how the Lord was going to deliver us. No idea. And I'd love to say that I had faith that it was coming down to the last minute. And I was, I mean, I was probably already at the bank figuring out what we were going to do because I was going to take matters in my own hands. And God said, I got this. Because God can deliver you in an unlimited number of ways if you trust him. If you believe that he holds your future in his hands. And in this moment, I had no way. I I, I mean, David can't comprehend for a second how he is going to be delivered, but he knows that God's going to deliver him. And this is what it takes. It is a renewing of your mind. Because in your mind, in your fleshly mind at times, I have no idea what's going to happen. And I don't trust God for a second in certain situations. And God says, trust me. And you, just, you give your mind to the Lord, Lord, I, I doubt you right now, but I know that you can deliver me. It's, it's pulling those, those negative thoughts, those snowball thoughts that want to take you into despair and take you into fear and take you into a loss of hope and say, Lord, you got it. I, I don't know how, but you got it. Verse 11, the Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed, but take now the spear that is at his head and the jar of water and let us go. So David took the spear and the water, the jar of water from Saul's head and they went away. No man saw it or knew it, nor did any awake, for they were all asleep because a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen upon them. So instead of taking Saul's life, David just takes his spear, takes his jug of water, which in the desert areas definitely would have been right by him at all times. And he says, Let's go. Verse 13. Then David went to the other side and stood far off on the top of the hill with a great space between them. And David called to the army and to Abner, the son of Ner, saying, Will you not answer, Abner? Then Abner answered, Who are you who calls to the king? And David said to Abner, Are you not a man? Who is like you in Israel? Why then have you not kept watch over your lord, the king? For one of the people came in to destroy the king, your lord. This thing that you have done is not good, and as the lord lives, you deserve to die, because you have not kept watch over your lord and the lord's anointed and now see where the king's spear is in the jar of water that was at his head david's basically i mean it's kind of taunting a little bit maybe mocking him a little he's just like where, where you at abner's like the top general the top dog he's the one that's got this he's saul's right hand man and david just calls him out and says where you been where you at I stuck all the way over. I took his jar. I took this. I mean, it's pretty bold to do that, especially if you have the chance of waking up 3,000 mercenaries. But David is walking with the Lord. Fear doesn't have a chance. It would like to, but it doesn't stand a chance against the power of God. All right, so here's what he does. Verse 17, Saul recognized. So Saul's stirring. Saul's waking up. Saul recognized David's voice and said, Is this your voice, my son David? And David said, It is my voice, my lord, O king. And he said, Why does my lord pursue after his servant? What have I done? What evil is on my hands? Now, therefore, let my lord, the king, hear the words of his servant. If it is the lord who has stirred you up against me, 
may he accept an offering. But if it is men, may they be cursed before the Lord, for they have driven me out of this day, out this day, that I should have no share in the heritage of the Lord, saying, go serve other gods. So here's what just happened. It's a very interesting statement because David's almost like he can't believe that this has gone on for eight and a half years. I just, David's like, I can't fathom why you are still chasing me. So he says, either the Lord has put this in your heart and you're being obedient for something I've done that's wrong and I'll make a sacrifice if needed or there's been men whispering in your ear and for that they should be cursed because I have done nothing. I have done nothing to deserve this. It's a, it's a, I mean, think about that. Eight and a half years of running and he's done nothing. I mean, some, some of us are walking through these hard paths and we're like, Lord, I have done nothing. What did I do to deserve this? And God's like, trust me. I've got a plan for your life. And I know you don't see the end, but trust me. All right, verse 20. Now therefore, let my blood fall to the earth away from the presence of the Lord. For the king of Israel has come out to seek a single flea, like one who hunts a partridge in the mountains. David's like, I'm like a flea. You've, got, you've hired 3,000 men to come find me. I'm nobody. I'm like a partridge in the mountains. Got all these men. Verse 21. Then Saul said, I have sinned. Return my son David, for I will no more do you harm, because my life was precious in your eyes this day. Behold, I have acted foolishly and have made a great mistake. And David answered and said, Here is the spear, O king. Let one of the young men come over and take it. The Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. For the Lord gave you into my hand today, and I would not put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. Behold, as your life was precious this day in my sight, so may my life be precious in the sight of the Lord. And may he deliver me out of all tribulation. Then Saul said to David, Blessed be you, my son David. You will do many things and will succeed in them. So David went his way and Saul returned to his place. Those are the last words that Saul and David will ever speak to each other. That's how the story ends. They part ways. Saul heads back to his place, eventually to disgrace and death. And David goes back out, eventually down the road to glory and victory. And and the crazy thing is, I read this final interaction. I'm like, wow, I, I don't know if Saul was genuinely repentant. I mean, it's not my place to judge him. But it, you know, you kind of think maybe Saul finally got it. Maybe after all these years of chasing David, maybe at least in this moment, he's understands David's place, understands that, you know, this is happening, that this is the way it's meant to be. And then you look at David and you see how he did, how he showed some discernment, how he said, this is the Lord's, how it looks like every single thing lined up perfectly for him to go ahead and take care of Saul. And he said, it's not my job. The Lord, the Lord will take care of this. It's like he's finally walking in lockstep with the Lord. He's where he needs to be. It's kind of like he's finally arrived. And, and here's, here's the crazy thing. All right, it's just like Satan to when you're, you're kind of at that point of call it spiritual higher, right where you need to be and everything's going great for Satan to come in and start, you know, the, the spiritual warfare to start t- taking place again. Because we're not going to walk through this next chapter. We'll let Jake do it in two weeks. But here's, I want to read the first two verses 
of chapter 27. The next two verses. Because here's what happens. The opening, immediately after the situation, where I think what I'm reading, all right, David's got it. He's finally got to the point where he's trusting the Lord. He's walking with the Lord. Everything's great. Verse 1. Then David said to himself, immediately after, David said to himself, now I will perish one day by the hand of Saul. There's nothing better for me than to escape into the land of the Philistines. Saul then will despair of searching for me anymore in all the territory of Israel, and I will escape from his hand. So David arose and crossed over he and 600 men who were with him, and they basically went to the king of Gath. They went to the hometown of Goliath. You know, and I love what he said. Then David said to himself, he, I mean, I'm picturing that. He thought about it. He contemplated it. He goes back and forth in his mind. And eventually decides that fleeing to Philistine territory, fleeing to the homeland of Goliath, would be the best move. And I'm just like, but you just had it. Like, you just, why would you do that? Like, you were so close. And yet, he flees. And he would be there for a year and a half which would take the eight and a half years up to a total of ten years. And eventually he would find himself on the throne, you know, a year and a half, two years later. And, and I'm not saying this was his fault. I mean, Saul was a madman. Saul was chasing him. I mean, we see how he ebbed and flowed and did things he was supposed to do. But here's the lesson that I want us to take away. There is a battle going on right now for your heart and your mind. Everybody in this room. There is a battle going on for your heart and mind. And Satan would love nothing more than to pull you down and consume you with fear and lack of trust and doubt. He would love nothing more than to have you spend your life snowballing into despair where you think there's no way out. Paul tells the church at Rome in Romans 8, 5, he says, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. So as we close, where's your mind today? Where's your mind this week? Where's your mind this month? Tozer went on to say in that same article, A.W. Tozer, he says, this is how he finishes it, he says, anyone who wishes to check on his true spiritual condition may do so by noting what his thoughts have been on over the last hours or days. What has he thought about when free to think of what he pleased? That's a scary thought, no pun intended, right? I mean, A.W. Tozer just says, when you just sit down, your mind can go anywhere it wants. Where does it go? Does it go over here? Or does it go over here? All right, Paul tells the church at Corinth, he says, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, and then I love this phrase, and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Take every thought captive. It gives the picture of a battle. Take every thought captive to obey Christ. My encouragement for you today, as we leave, is to take every thought captive. The thoughts of fear and doubt that I know for a fact, because we're human, cross our minds at some point over some situation. 
and doubt starts to creep in, renew your mind. Romans 12. Cry out to the Lord and say, Lord, fill me with you. Fill me with your goodness. Fill me with your thoughts. Let me meditate on you. Meditation was such a, such a discipline of the Old Testament that we've kind of got away from in this day and age, but just meditate on Scripture. Meditating on the goodness of the Lord. The Apostle Paul says, here's what he says to the church at Philippi. Verse, uh, Philippians 4, 6. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And listen to this. In the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding. That doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense why you should be okay in the situation that you're in right now. But the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will do what? It will guard your hearts. And what else? It will guard your minds in Christ Jesus. And then verse 8, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, what? Think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. All right, some of you might be here today. You've lived your entire life in fear. I don't, I don't mean like running from things. I just mean like mental fear. You've never experienced the peace that comes through a relationship with Jesus. And my, my challenge or my encouragement to you today is to put your faith in him. Right? He came to earth, he hung on a cross to pay the penalty for your sins and my sins. And when Paul tells the church at Rome, he says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. I'm going to close with this verse. There's a David at the very end of his life. He's talking to his son Solomon, who was eventually known as the wisest man that ever lived. And he's talking to Solomon, and he gives this challenge to Solomon. And I'm, you know, as I think about it, I can't help but wonder if David's thinking back to all the things that happened, all his runnings and dealings with Saul, all the things that have happened in the past and his mind and all these things. And here's what he tells Solomon towards the end of his life. In 1 Chronicles 28, it says, As for you, my son Solomon, know the God of your father and serve him with a whole heart and a willing mind. For the Lord searches all hearts and understands every intent of the thoughts. If you seek him, he will let you find him. But if you forsake him, he will reject you forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this passage, this chapter, chapter 26 of 1 Samuel, Lord, I just, I thank you for the fact, Lord, that, that you are who you say you are, that you are the provider, Lord, that you are the one that just works in our hearts and works in our minds, Lord, and if we walk with you and trust you, Lord, that you are our deliverer, and may not be the deliverance we want, but the deliverance that you know is right for us. Lord, we love you and we thank you just for this church family that comes together. Lord, I pray that we'd be an encouragement to each other, that we would challenge each other, Lord, that we would point each other to you and that we would walk with you every step of the way. Lord, we love you and we thank you in your name. Amen.